Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Usually, a late career live album is a victory lap, an excuse to tour, or at worst, an excuse to make some extra cash. For Billy Joel, however, it was a sign that he was back on the scene. Released on June 13th, 2006, 12 Gardens Live is a two-disc set. It features performances from Billy's groundbreaking run of a dozen shows at Madison Square Garden between January 23rd and April 24th of that year. In many ways, it felt like a retrospective. You had all the big hits, fan favorites, plus a handful of rarities that even hardcore fans never thought they'd hear live. But 12 Gardens Live also serves as proof of concept for Billy's return to touring after a two-year sabbatical, and it sets the tone for his monthly garden residency that began in 2014. With the exception of Mike Del Judas, who joined the fold in late 2013, the album features the new solidified lineup he's used ever since. The exception to that is the return of saxophonist Richie Cannata, who played alongside Mark Rivera on this tour. Other than that, this document laid the groundwork for the next decade and a half, and hopefully many more years to come. Join us as we dig deep into 12 Gardens Live. So for this episode, we're going all the way back to 2006. In some ways, it feels like forever ago, but at the same time, in the scope of Billy's career, this was 13 years after his last pop album. And we've got 12 Gardens Live, which celebrated a dozen show run at Madison Square Garden in the spring of 2006. Kind of maybe forecasting the uh, the residency that was to come years later, huh? And for an album that should feel like a retrospective, it's really a statement of intent for what came next, because this is arguably the blueprint for the uh, garden residency that would come in a, in a couple of years. This is pretty much the same band with very few exceptions. It's what a lot of the songs now sound like. And as we had discussed in a previous episode, 2003 seemed to be his last big year. Certainly the last, as we realized, with Live On Drums. It was when he was seeming to feel really burnt out by touring, clearly was not going to put out another album. It's hard to believe now, but for a minute there, we could have been looking at the last Billy Joel tour almost 18 years ago. But he rallied after that, and he he got a couple new players, went back out on the road, and that's where we get 12 Gardens Live. Yeah, I remember after the first hiatus after the 2003 tour, I was really bracing myself for Billy to be done. I I feel like this tour kind of came as a surprise. I was touring at the time when this whole tour got announced and I was so surprised to see Billy Joel coming up again. And the guy I was touring with, I remember I'm saying, I don't care where we are. We've got to figure out a way to see a show on this tour Mm -hmm. because it's been a while and I don't know if this is going to happen again. Yeah. And we made it happen in Tampa. I'm glad about, which was a little bit before this uh, garden run. What was really exciting about it, though, especially with these garden shows, is that he was really starting to sprinkle in some deep cuts. And I think some of that might have had to do with the fact that he was kind of missing playing again. And it was something to kind of get him excited about playing these shows. But before we get into the album, we're glad to bring back an installment we started at the beginning of this year. We got some more fan mail, finally. Nothing like us browbeating you for two or three episodes. And uh... <laughs> Well, it clearly worked. So this one comes from John Grieco, and it's in response to our episode about the bridge tour. So John writes, hello, Michael and Jack. I'm a few weeks behind, so I apologize for my lack of prioritization. I've been a Billy fan since I was 13 when the little album called The Stranger was released. It didn't take long before I acquired all of his previous albums, with the exception of Cold Spring Harbor, of course. I did eventually find one with DJ copy stamped on the label. So if you ever want to hear from a fan who literally grew up on Billy's music, let me know. I started playing classical piano at five years old and was drawn to Billy for that reason, among many others. That fact also helped me get him approved by my mother. I grew up in Albany, New York, which is about an hour and a half south of Glens Falls. When I found out that Billy was starting the bridge tour there, I had to go. It was a surprise to me because the Civic Center was only a 5,000-seat hockey arena, which was small by Billy's standards at the time. Our seats, unfortunately, were all the way at the other end of the stage, and it was well before jumbo screens, so my trusty binoculars were always in hand. 
The first impression as we walked in only five minutes before start time due to an ex-girlfriend making us late was the blasting of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, probably to also add to the blue color tone of the album and stage. The look of that stage didn't really change throughout the whole tour, but it was very different from anything seen up until that time. A very uncluttered and clean look. Musically, it was incredible as expected. Unfortunately, I do not remember that solo in Zanzibar, but I do think it was played on keyboard by Dave LeBolt. Speaking of LeBolt, I'm very jealous of that guy. He got my dream job, Billy Joel's keyboard player. I first saw him on the Nylon Curtain Tour, but this was different. He was right up front with a single keyboard that spun all the way around, but it was his dancing that ruined the show for me. He wouldn't stay still for a second. Very distracting. It's a good thing he could play. Having backup singers on stage was different too. I missed the Innocent Man tour, so this was a first for me. Sounded great, but I didn't like the fact that Billy wasn't singing high parts anymore, especially on An Innocent Man. That was my second Billy show at the time, and I've lost count how many times I've seen him total. I actually got to ask him a question at one of his master classes as well. But that's a story for another time. Thanks for your great podcast. It certainly keeps my love for Billy and his music alive. I also play bass guitar and consider Doug Stegmeyer one of my teachers. So I really love the show devoted to him. Well, I got to go listen to another episode. Thanks again, John Greco. All right, John, thanks a lot. I love this email because it touches on so many different errors and so many different things about Billy's career and things we've mentioned too. So it's really cool. See, this is what I love about getting these emails, especially from older fans or let's just say fans who have been fans for a very long time. You know, it's that idea that he couldn't find Cold Spring Harbor until he found a DJ only copy. By the 80s, you could at least get the reissue. And when you and I were coming up and we were finally like, okay, I'm going to dig all the way back to Cold Spring Harbor. Like you could find that cassette pretty easily. So it's funny to hear back when like, oh yeah, The Stranger came out and I'm going back finding the old albums and I had to really hunt around for this one. It's also cool that he got to see the show in a 5,000-seat arena before he hit the the, the larger venues. We didn't catch that about Rhapsody in Blue, I don't think. That wasn't part of our episode. No, we didn't mention that at all, and it didn't occur to me. I remember seeing from different footage that that was the song before they went out, but that's a great notice right there, and that wouldn't surprise me if that was very intentional to tie it all together. And I don't think everybody would have caught that. You know, when I was younger... I wouldn't have caught that either. And I guess we got a little closer to the Zanzibar solo question. Uh, We can't confirm it, but it looks like it was played on keyboard on this tour. Interesting comment about Dave LeBolt being very visual and dancing around. I don't know, for my money, I've watched that Russian show so many times. I loved his energy there. Yeah. So I thought it was fun. And maybe it's just because of how the show was edited. He didn't at all feel distracting to me. But that's an interesting take for somebody who actually saw the whole thing live. Yeah. You know, I mean, if Dave LeBolt's doing his thing on the side, like constantly, you're like, all right, dude, (laughs) you know, how about binoculars? I feel like we don't bring binoculars to shows anymore. No, you really don't, which is, you know, he mentions the whole Jumbotron thing and, and or the big screens yeah. on the sides of stages. I mean, that's so prevalent now in these big shows that you find yourself just watching those screens if you really can't see, which is yeah. kind of funny. But yeah, man, great email, John. It was really great to hear all your points. And you touched on so many things that we've thought about and a few things that we certainly haven't. So keep it coming. Feel free to reach out anytime. This is fantastic. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a great read. All right. Let's get into 12 Gardens Live. Depending on which version you have, you could have up to 32 songs on yours. I'm going to read them off real quick, and then I'm going to talk about my little uh, fun with spreadsheets I had this week. Track listing here goes Angry Young Man, My Life, Everybody Loves You Now, Ballad of Billy the Kid, The Entertainer, Vienna, New York State of Mind, The Night is Still Young, Zanzibar, Miami 2017, Great Wall of China, Allentown, She's Right on Time, Don't Ask Me Why, Laura, A Room of Our Own, Good Night Saigon, Moving Out, An Innocent Man, The Downeaster Alexa, She's Always a Woman, Keeping the Faith, River of Dreams, Matter of Trust, We Didn't Start the Fire, Big Shot, You May Be Right, Only the Good Die Young, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Piano Man, and So It Goes, and then it's still rock and roll to me. Now that's 32 tracks right there. And again, remember how we talked about it few episodes back, the era of the CD format and cramming as much into the disc as possible. Yep. This was right in that era. You've got almost two and a half hours about worth of music here, 16 songs per disc, and they really filled up every inch they could. 
Yeah, I'm looking here. The total length is two hours, 32 minutes, 47 seconds. Yeah, it really allowed for them to put a ton of the big hits on there as well as some of the deep cuts that got pulled out. It's a nice balance of both, which this set isn't structured fully like the live show, but it it really is a nice balance of both hits and obscurities. Speaking of adding on, and speaking of cramming to CDs, this one gets even a little muddier because if you went on iTunes, you could also get Stiletto and Honesty. And then Sony Music Direct was offering direct downloads of You're My Home and Sleeping With the Television on. There's a couple different uh, versions of this going out. I guess the official count would be 36 songs if you had the whole shebang. So there's a lot to go through here. We're going to breeze through these songs a little faster than we have when we've gone through other concerts because we don't want to make this a Springsteen concert in terms of length. But there's a lot to be said about... What these songs sound like now, especially with Chuck Berge on drums, which is arguably the biggest change. And what I was interested in finding out was how many of these songs made it to a live album for the first time here, and which ones have multiple versions. And so I, uh, I put the quick spreadsheet together, and we put together five live albums. So in order, they go Songs in the Attic, Concert, uh, which is the Red Album from Russia. Now, I included Bridge to Russia as a second one because it has additional tracks on it. But then we have the Millennium Concert, and then we have 12 Gardens and Last Play at Shea. So I wanted to see where the the overlap was. And, you know, sure enough, the Obscurities, the fan favorites, there were definitely a bunch of those that made it here for the first time. So those would be A Room of Our Own, And So It Goes, Laura, She's Right on Time, The Great Wall of China, The Night is Still Young. Those were the rarities that made it on for the first time. And then also, this is the first time we got the Downeaster Alexa and the Entertainer. Yeah, because the Stranger reissue, anyway, with Carnegie Hall came out after this, right? Yeah, yeah. that was only two, three years ago. Right. So I'm, I'm also not counting that. I'm not counting the videos live from Long Island and so forth. So we're just going right. with standalone live albums. What's funny about this is we've said a million times, and we'll say it again, you know, Songs in the Attic is such a singular live album because they recreated old studio songs with the new band, with the Lords of 52nd Street. And the whole conceit behind that live album was it was recorded in a bunch of different places and it sounded like it was in a bunch of different places. And the whole idea was to get his great band on these old tracks that had studio musicians on them for the most part. You know, obviously the stuff with turnstiles they were on. You have a lot of bands that will put out live albums almost arbitrarily, almost just because they can. And there's nothing really special Mm -hmm. about the date. Now with Billy... He's not really one to make any radical changes in the songs, for the most part. You'll hear some arrangement changes, things like that, but he's certainly not the dead. So what you often get with him, and, and this is certainly in line with that, is he tends to only document important things. Like the Russia tour was such a monumental historic thing. You know, the Millennium Concert. He did that. Last play at Shea was the last concert at Shea Stadium. This one is probably the most esoteric in terms of significance because it was just the fact that he was coming back and he was doing this monumental 12-show run, you know, whereas everything else kind of had a social tie to it of some sort. Um, That being said, only a few songs from Songs in the Attic make it here. Those songs are Everybody Loves You Now, which was a little bit of a surprise, I think, Miami 2017, Mm -hmm. Ballad of Billy the Kid, and that's it. The ones that have made the most appearances all, all in all are Allentown, Goodnight Saigon, Only the Good Die Young, Angry Young Man. Those are on basically everything but songs in the attic. Concert, uh, Bridge to Russia, Millennium Concert, Last Play at Shea. Then you have Ballad mm-hmm. of Billy the Kid. That's a funny one because that one was on songs in the attic, but it's not on concert, but it is on Bridge to Russia, and then it's also on Millennium Concert and Last Play at Shea. The ones that are on only this and the Millennium Concert are Don't Ask Me Why, Moving Out, and the only ones that are on this one and Last Play at Shea are Keeping the Faith and Zanzibar. You know, that tells you which ones were just concert staples and which ones he used in the past to make an impression. You know, everything on Songs in the Attic was yeah. very much intent. Everything else was more of a document of the shows, even though, you know, all of these almost are you know, heavily edited or resequenced. We've gone through how Last Play at Shea is resequenced. Bridge to Russia and Concert were excerpts and they, you know, they kind of rearrange them as needed. Uh, the Millennium Concert's probably the closest to a full show as it happened, but even that one has a couple songs taken out and things like that. So with that in mind, you know, it's really obvious, if you listen closely, it's very obvious that this is a new band. The line that came up the most in my notes was rollicking. I may be using that slightly wrong, as I sometimes do, but this band clearly shines the most when you have a song that does not rely on too much swagger. 
or too many dynamics. If you get a song, okay. and we'll get into this, something like Don't Ask Me Why, where it's a very level kind of grooving song the whole time, it's perfect. When you get something like, let's say, Miami 2017, it's missing something. The dynamics are too flat. They, it doesn't have the same punch that the Lords did. It also doesn't have Phil Ramone's master hand on the board uh, reshaping even the live version. That's the big thing for me. A couple of these songs sound fantastic. A couple of them I, I've definitely heard better versions of. Like you said, with this being the first one with Chuck Berge, it feels like a new band compared to every other release, certainly, yeah. because of where his groove and his feel takes the songs and Tommy really playing out quite a bit on guitar. Mm-hmm. These songs certainly feel different here than on almost any other release. And I would even argue the uh, last play at Shea as well, which was only a few years after. I would say that for the most part, although when we get to it, I did AB one song and you almost couldn't tell the difference. Well, Gardens Live as we talked about, was recorded over 12 nights at Madison Square Garden in New York. And this was in the spring of 2006. Now, this live album was produced by Steve Lillywhite. You've probably heard many of his uh, recordings over mm-hmm. the years. He's done a lot of U2 records. What was There was the famous uh, Dave Matthews, Steve Lillywhite sessions. Gosh, he's, he's done so many big records over the years. I, I don't have his list in front of me. But, I mean, he's done every one from... Chris Cornell, Counting Crows, The Killers, Travis, a, a bunch of U2 stuff. That's probably where he's most known. He also did a handful of those early Dave Matthews albums. To me, it's a bit interesting because it's weird to think of a traditional producer for a live record like mm-hmm. this. And I do think his treatment on here reminds me a bit of the Fish albums he did and the Dave Matthews albums that he did, where this is a wide open sonic palette you feel like mm-hmm. you're in a stadium and that i think was replicated or picked up again for Last play at shea where they made you feel like you were in the audience without right. it sounding cavernous or like a bootleg you had a sense of the space um the band's crystal clear whereas some of the earlier live albums sound much closer and you you feel a little less of the room on the earlier stuff so in the band you had chuck Berge on drums which was his first tour with billy and therefore his first recorded appearance with Billy. He had Tommy Burns on guitar and vocals, Richie Cannata returning to the band on saxophone, Carl Fisher on trombone and trumpet, Mark Rivera on flute, guitar, keyboards, saxophone, and vocals, David Rosenthal on keyboards, organ, piano, and vocals, Crystal Taliaferro on guitar, percussion, saxophone, and vocals, and then you also had Andy Sichon on bass and vocals. All right, so with that in mind... uh... So let's go into disc one. You want to start there? Kicks off with Prelude, Angry Young Man. I was always surprised that this didn't make it to Songs in the Attic because it was such a big part of his repertoire back then. And he certainly recast a few songs from Turnstiles there, but not that one. Maybe it was actually too big. Maybe the other ones were a little more obscure and fun that way. But with that in mind, it's it's a pretty brazen move. I think we've said this before to put this first on the live album that kicks off this next phase of your career. Because those Liberty DeVito fills were so iconic and so well known to everyone. And this was often an opener. So you're really making a statement of intent by putting Chuck Berge front and center on this. And, you know, for the most part, he does a great job. The two notes I make, and this is like almost, this is really nitpicky. Maybe I'm looking way too much into it. Um, you know, the first fill that Chuck does is not one of Liberty's fills. It's just a straight run down the toms. Then after right. that, he replicates a whole bunch of Liberty's fills on the intro, on the prelude. And then you get a couple of his patented heavy metal uh John Bonhamish fast double bass drum rolls. Chuck did a great job with it for sure. I did miss that Liberty DeVito touch. I'm not going to lie for sure. That song was Liberty's drum fills and everything like that on there. It's funny. I remember talking to Liberty years ago and he said, you know, if we didn't have Angry Young Man in the set, I wouldn't need three rack toms. <laughs> yeah. And what makes it that we sound different is is the tuning. Now, back in the day, Liberty had drums that did not have bottom heads. So it gives all those toms a very different feel. They, they're more like concert toms. They're a little more melodic a little more dialed in than when you have heads on both sides. Chuck Berge, Mm -hmm. like most drummers, especially just about everyone now, plays drums with heads on the tops and the bottoms of the drum. He also plays larger drums. Like, he plays 
big drums that give him a, a deeper sound. Yeah, yeah, certainly. At Liberty's smaller times, I think he had a 10 to 12, and they were much smaller than I think what Chuck was using. So that's going to give you a much higher, much tighter sound than the boominess of the uh, toms that Chuck uses. Right. So in true show fashion, we go from Angry Young Man into My Life. Now, this is another one that this band does really well on because this song does bode well for a flat dynamic for the most part. You know, the big change is it is that there's a timing breakdown um, where they go to Mm -hmm. double time. And that sort of takes the place of, of a lot of louder, soft parts coming in. Yeah, but you're right. Dynamically, this song is in the middle of the road, and yeah. this band does well with it. This also highlights why it's great that this band can do this, because when you hear the way Billy can then play with the rhythm of the vocals, you realize he's just able to bounce off this train that's not stopping. You know, it's very smooth. There's none of the angularness mm-hmm. of the Lords, that, which is great. You know, it was a great effect, just they, were, they had a little more swagger to them, a little more funk. Uh, but this is smoothed out just enough that... Billy has some room to play with the with the vocal rhythm. During the intro, I love guitar work, the riffing that uh, Tommy Burns is doing. Just a, a nice little touch before getting into the verses. So now we get into a pair that's perhaps challenging for a diehard Lords of 52nd Street fan. We have Everybody Loves You Now and The Ballad of Billy the Kid. Neither of these were big hits, although Billy the Kid's a little more well-known. But more notably, both of these songs in a row were on Songs in the Attic, which crystallized lord's versions of them uh with everybody loves you now I, re- I remember being happy to see it back in a set so that part was certainly exciting what i loved about the lord's version of it is the twin acoustic guitars of david and russell really drove that song with billy's piano almost accompanying the rhythm of the guitar here it's kind of flipped around the guitars are really buried with billy's piano up front and after that, we've got the fourth song, which is The Ballad of Billy the Kid, which is another one that was cemented in Songs in the Attic, as you mentioned. I think it was a fun song. I think it had good energy overall. Uh, didn't drive quite as hard as the Attic version, but certainly had more pep than the Piano Man version. Yeah, this is one that's not served well by the production, or as we've been saying, the fact that this band's highlight is, is staying, getting in a groove and staying there. It's based on classical music, and and you want those dynamics. You want those ups and downs and things like that. So it's still a nice rendition, but yeah, nothing's going to beat the the songs in the attic version of this one for sure. And so from there, you go a little further into sort of muddy water, so to speak, with The Entertainer. Now, this is one that you could have almost seen on Songs in the Attic, but it wasn't on there. And on this one, of course, you know, like everything else, it's moved out sort of dynamically flat treatment. And I feel like when I say dynamically flat, it's a bad thing, but it's not necessarily because as we're seeing, it works great on a few songs. Now, The Entertainer, the tricky thing about it, as we've said in previous episodes, is that it's such a studio song. There's so many overdubs and there's like all these weird synths and then they bring in a banjo and this and that, that it never sounded quite like that live. It came out a little better here than it does on the Carnegie Hall one. The Carnegie Hall one always sounded a little weird to me. I, I don't think it was one that translated well to a smaller band. And so I think with this band that just grooves through it, even though you do lose a little of the dynamic lift that you would think you needed on a song like this because it's so repetitive, it's just verse after verse after verse, I think they do a good job with it. I think that this harkens, I'm going to go a completely different route, to something almost like James Brown or Parliament Funkadelic where you have these long songs that... If you want to be cynical, you could say are dynamically flat and don't go anywhere. But the glass half full version of that, and uh, as on The Entertainer is, you're just in a groove. You're in that moment, and I think that works for this song. No live version of The Entertainer is ever going to come close to the studio version because of all the overdubs, but this one does pretty well. Yeah, agreed. And this was another example vocally, lowering the key and Billy's now at this point different vocal approach certainly changed the feel and the vibe of the song. Uh, Everybody Loves You Now is another one like that where Billy had that nice high tenor voice. It gave it a different character than it does now. Not that it necessarily takes away from it, but it just it puts you in a different space with the with the lower vocal and the lower key. After the entertainer, we're going into Vienna from The Stranger. And I really like this performance. Yeah, it's just a nice kind of middle of the road song. I think the band does really well with it. Billy's vocal sounded great to me. How about New York State of Mind? This is one, to be honest with you, I tend to gloss over a lot. I know a lot of people love it. 
It's just not one of my favorites. I'm in the same boat. It's just never really connected me on a big level. I'd honestly say my favorite version of it is that soundcheck version from the Russian tour. That was the bonus track because it was just loose and it really felt like they were just like getting up ready for the last show yeah. and homesick. <laughs> and which is kind of what New York State of Mind is about. Right. You know? This version is okay. I think to me the highlight is Richie Kanata because he brings a lot to that song that I've missed over the years. Um, and he sounded great. But yeah, it's a song that just overall, if I need to dip out and get a t-shirt or go get a drink, that might be the song I do it because I know it's going to go a little ways. It is nice having Richie reclaim his solo, so to speak, after we got a alternate take of the solo on the uh, Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2. You know, with this tour, it being Richie and Mark, how was it decided who was going to do what now that some of these sax parts are being split up again? I kind of picture them like duking it out in the parking lot, but... Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> or was it more like, okay, the songs that Richie originally recorded leading up to his departure in 81, did he kind of take the lead on the sax stuff there and Mark kind of took the lead on, you know, Innocent Man Through River of Dream stuff? I wonder if it was just kind of split up based on their tenure in the band. If you listen closely, I think you could start to tell the difference. And there was at least one song, I don't know if I made a note of it but uh you can tell it's richie because he's playing that raspy clarence clemensy style uh which brings us to now here we go with the deep cuts now we got the night is still young let me tell you something stripped of its 80s production this song is a little timeless this song holds up more than you might think it would based on the original absolutely i love this song i love the 80s version of it as well certainly but with all that stripped away you're like wow this is a great song and I think this performance is incredible. It's certainly one of my favorites on this set. And what I really like is because the original version was tracked with Billy doing a low part and Billy doing a high part yeah. over top of it. Now with Crystal in the band, Crystal can take those high lines. Billy's still taking the low line. And because Billy is still able to sing low, they can still keep it in the original key. Yeah, yeah it is. I love Crystal's vocals on this. Kind of makes me want to hear her sing more. You know, we've heard her belt from time to time as needed, you know, whether in a backing vocal situation or, of course, you know, hitting the high notes on an innocent man. On this, she has, I don't want to say thinner, but definitely more controlled. I also feel like it's going to be pandering if I say it's like a little like Billie Holiday, but it's got that sort of tightness to it. I really liked it. Yeah. I think it was a nice contrast to Billie's more legato low parts, and she was a little more staccato. She was a little tighter on it up top. The background vocals on the chorus sound great and the you know the harmonica mixed in nicely during that uh, it's just well put together and you know for a song that really had an incredibly short shelf life live back in the day bringing it out here in 2006 it really sat nicely here and gosh i, I would love to see him bring it out again honestly yeah well yeah as we'll see with this one and a few of the other rarities they just sound fresher because he hasn't done them to death and it's funny because you know most of his garden shows there's clips of them online and he sort of surprisingly let running on ice get out there because like halfway through that version you know which one i'm talking about he you could just see it on there. his face like oh you were there for that yeah i remember when he when he was saying they were going to go into it my whole thought was like oh my God, they're going to try this. <laughs> and then to me, that that's not an easy song to play. Yeah. It's fast, really quick keyboard thing going on, like libs, drums, the whole police vibe, everything. First of all, I'm like, do they even know it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as we later found out, the answer was not really. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. Halfway through that, <laughs> Billy's got that look on his face. It's like, I've made a horrible mistake. But at the same time, I'm like, holy crap, I was there for it. Yeah. <laughs> and actually say I saw Running on the Ice Live.
we get back into slightly more familiar territory, uh, Zanzibar. Though at the same time, as of 2006, this was not familiar. This became a mainstay from here on out, but it really did not get played much until then. We saw it come out a bit on the bridge tour, like we had talked about, Mm -hmm. and certainly in the 52nd Street era a bit. But overall, this did not stay in the set much. But after 2006, and specifically with the addition of Carl Fisher, right. That became his big showcase. Yeah, that made a big difference getting Carl in there. You could really do it right. You know, we saw in Houston when he did it, the Live in Houston bootleg, it's him running up to the organ and playing. Uh, Then Mm -hmm. we think it was Dave LeBolt on the bridge. Yeah, now that he's got a a real deal horn up there. um, And, you know, I always wondered, and there's probably a music theory reason, why he didn't just give that solo to a sax player. I don't know if it's because of the, the registers are different. Or, hey, man, uh, I, I speak no shade. That is a hard bop solo. And, you know, it's very possible that Richie and Mark were like, yeah, I don't play like that. It's just, it's not my thing. Thinking back, you know, with Richie's style, the, the classic gritty rock and roll style, that's a very different school. I remember when I saw this live in 2006, I remember thinking how exciting it was to see it back in the set list after all these years. And it's funny, I went on to get a little sick of it you know (laughs) how spoiled am i but you know i remember back then it was a real treat back in the day you know 2006 to see this live and carl fisher just stole the show there yeah he really comes out on this one amazingly now we go from that highlight to what's unfortunately for me a low light on this album that's miami 2017 doesn't do anything for me you're in a giant you know cavern you should be pushing yeah. into the red on this one as far as I'm concerned, and, and it's a little more reserved. And you've got a metal drummer back there. Like, come on, dude, let him out. It never takes off. Yeah, it just doesn't, and it's a, it's a damn shame because I love this song a whole, whole lot. Picking back up, though, I like Great Wall of China on here. Again, it gets a really fresh treatment here because he doesn't play it that often. It's also one of his technically mm-hmm. newer songs. There's a lot of grit in the vocals on the solo after the verse, which I thought was great. Um, however, this one mm-hmm. loses a little because of the lack of dynamics. I also don't like when he lowers his voice for a few parts. Now, when we talked yeah. about River of Dreams, you know, we talked about this is the first time it doesn't sound like he's tracking his vocals live. In a studio version, it makes sense. You're not dealing with trying to breathe in real time and change the registers of your voice. In concert, he is, and I don't think it came off. I would have much preferred to hear some backup vocals or a different take on it. At points, it almost sounded like those backing vocals were a keyboard patch. That said, there are some great backing vocals on this album. And that was something that we didn't get on Songs in the Attic and not really on uh, on, the, on the Russia album either. He seems to be more comfortable with having more harmonies, more background vocals. And at least if he, if he had them before, they're certainly higher in the mix. I feel like we've seen Crystal singing a lot but you don't hear her a lot i think earlier too when you had doug and russell singing background vocals back then Mm -hmm. they both blended with billy so well Mm. and doug really could sound like billy it almost didn't stand out outside of you know billy's vocal it just blended in it so well so the vocals don't really pop in a lot of spots back then but with billy's band now the vocalists are all great but they all have very unique characteristics in their voice. And, you know, they come to the forefront more. Yeah. I like it, though. I like I like appreciating and noticing when the, when the background vocals are coming in. What I like about this, too, is that this was one of the songs on here that Liberty and any of the other Lords ever played. My mind isn't prejudiced with, oh, this is how the Lords used to do it. This is how Liberty used to play it. So now we get to Allentown. This is the one where I A-beat it with Last Play at Shea, and, you know, it's almost identical. Uh, the only thing as a Last Play at Shea is that the uh, the mechanical, the you know, the um, pile-driving sound effects are a little further up in the mix at times. And weirdly, like, they just come in and come out, which I thought was odd, but this one is served well by this band. They have the, the low end for it. They have the heaviness. And where they don't have that old school swagger or a bunk to them, the smoothness really works for a song like this. Really uh, greases the mm-hmm. wheels if we're keeping with the um, industrial theme. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I like the pile driver sound effect, but I, I think I'm, I agree with you that it's too high in the mix in these recent versions. I think it needs to sit just a little further back 
Uh, so it just doesn't jump out at you for sure. You think Brian Ruggles listening to is like, oh, really? Oh, I needed to put a little further back. Hey, sorry, I've been doing this right. for 40 years. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, funny enough, I'd love to be uh, schooled on this. To me, this sounds like he goes down. He shifts this down a, a couple keys or a couple steps. But I don't think yeah. he actually does. I think he just sings it deeper. Because I, again, tried to A-B this, and I have a horrible ear. But it sounded like it was in the original key. It's just that he sang with a higher, thinner voice. Yeah, this may be one that he's kept in the original key. Yeah. If not, maybe a half step down, but I think it's closer than others, if not still in the original. I researched it at one point years ago, and I, I wish I kept those notes, but you you might be right there. Well, whoever's listening and has perfect pitch, give the uh, studio version of Last Play H.A. and 12 Gardens Live a listen and, uh, you know, remind me why I can't sing harmonies that well. So now we get another rarity, She's Right On Time, which is one of my favorites, really is. Nothing really revelatory in this version. Decent, but it's great to hear it. I mean, I think I would have peed my pants if I heard him do it. <laughs> I remember prior to this, it was the end of 2005, Billy and the band did a, um, a thing, it was I think on the Today Show, where they were like rehearsing for the tour, mm-hmm. and they played a couple songs. This was one of them. Yeah. So I kind of had a feeling that this was going to make an appearance later. Certainly did. I think Billy's vocal sounded great in the bridge, especially on this one. Right. I think the band was solid. What the tricky part is, and Chuck didn't do it, the way the drums come in on the studio version, it's so unique and off the beat. I mean, it's in time. Yeah. But it's not where your mind thinks it should go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he either slows down or he adds like a 16th or something there. Because it's a real weird count. One, two... Two, two, one, two, three, four, one. You feel that? They throw in an extra eighth note. Or Is something. it an eighth? Yeah, I think it's about an eighth. Four. All right, let's let's count it with the eighth note now. Here we go. I'm I'm also counting uh, two measures of two at the beginning, even though it's technically four, but it feels like it. One, right. two, 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 one and two and three and four and five. It's a 16th. Damn. I mean, that was probably just a complete feel thing on the album. I doubt they were like, hey, man, we're, we're going to do this song. And there's going to be one measure of uh, 17, 16. You know, like, I don't think that was the oh, case. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. They were not Yes or Dream Theater. <laughs> right. But that being said, totally logical for them to drop that funkiness out of the live version because that's just a recipe for a train wreck oh, yeah. for a live setting. <laughs> yeah. So from there, we go into familiar territory with Don't Ask Me Why. This one shines on this album. This song was made for this band and made for the wide open production here. And it's such a silly song that it's always more fun live because you hear them just, you know, taking little flights of fancy where, you know, the studio version is good, but it, it almost seems like he figured it out. It was a joke after he tracked it. He sounds like kind of like right. real earnest about it. And like Phil later was like, uh, you know this song's kind of dumb, right? Like, you know, it's silly. I shouldn't say that. That's how rumors oh, get started, but, you know. Right, right. I, I do like it in the higher register, but, I mean, I totally get why he doesn't sing it that high anymore. But the sample hand claps sound terrible. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. I did have this in my thing. Yeah, that was god-awful. Those are so bad. Yeah. I don't know what they were thinking with that. I'd rather you just leave it off altogether or just have Mark Crystal... Yeah. And Carl up at the mic clapping. You got clap. nine people in this band. That's like that's my only beef. Now it occurs to me with these next two that he really brings the nylon curtain to the forefront on this album. We just talked about one. Now we're going to talk about two more. So these are three deep cuts from the nylon curtain that he does on this album. The first one was, of course, she's right on time. Then now we get Laura and a room of her own, and we know that Billy loved doing the nylon curtain. It was supposed to be his big. You know, sort of artistic statement, the one that kind of shut the critics up. Uh, and it wasn't his biggest hit, but it's still pretty well revered. But I think it is because it it spins off three hits on the first side. Second side is, is pretty obscure. And so he reclaims a bit of it here with Laura and A Room of Her Own. For my money, Laura falls in the same spot as she's right on time. Doesn't do too much for me. I think A Room of Her Own mm-hmm. takes flight for sure. I think he has a lot of fun yeah. with that one. Yeah, and again, you know, it's it's a tough album to to reclaim live because it was such a, a meticulous studio project. Lots of overdubs, a lot of careful, sure. you know, mixing things like that. That uh, you know, it's tough to do any of these live, really. 
But yeah, yeah Room of Our Own, uh, very, uh, as I put in my notes all over the place, rollicking. You know, the band locks into that yep. groove, they keep it right there, and once again, he's able to really bounce off the band and, and mess with the rhythm of the song a little, of the vocals, to great effect. I don't know, Jack, did you notice, or not, I didn't pay attention close enough to the end, but does Chuck play Liberty's screw-up, or does he still play it straight? You know what I'm talking about, where Liberty accidentally turned around the beat at the end? Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if Chuck played the screw-up that Liberty did, or if he kept it straight, because I always found that funny. Yeah, that's that's so that's a Ginger Baker move. <laughs> that's like Crossroads. He comes yeah. along with me. That's all right. Let's see. That was a Liberty. Oops! And Phil Ramone go keep playing. Yeah. Now nah, he plays it. He plays it straight. Almost disappointing. I was just curious. Yeah. You really wonder if something like if there's a discussion about something like that because Billy's pretty laissez-faire with rehearsing. I guess it's expected that Tommy or maybe David Rosenthal is, is running rehearsals in his absence. You wonder if there was ever a discussion about that, like, hey man, there's this weird thing that happens on the record. Should we do it or not? These songs have morphed so much, especially in the last 20 years, that feel like they're, you know, they're not holding their feet to the fire on these album versions. Yeah. For my money, I bet you that wasn't even a discussion. It was just, you know, he learned the song pretty much and we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, that's true. It's not like it's a, a big hit where people are going to be like, oh, dude, you don't do that thing on the, on the one, you know. So we're going to stay in the Nylon Curtain. Now we're going to do Goodnight Saigon, which gets a lot more play, certainly. This is one of those ones that's on everything but Songs in the Attic. And, of course, it wasn't even written when Songs in the, when songs in the Attic came out. Hey, man, this mm-hmm. one is what it is, and it works pretty much every time. It's, you almost sound like you're, you're downplaying it, but it's a very touching song. We'll say from a sequencing standpoint... You know, this is the song that opens disc two mm-hmm. and thinking still in that type of sequencing, like what, how you're going to start and end a disc. To me, it seems like an odd choice to start the second disc. You know, I'm inclined to agree, but I will yes and you and say that it's one of his best known songs in a, in a not in a hit way, in a sentimental, everyone knows it kind of way. I do think in that sense, it's feels like it was a very conscious thing to do to give this song a spotlight. So now we're into hit territory, more upbeat territory, a little more rocking territory with moving out. Let's go bad to the good. I don't like the synths in place of Russell's plunking on guitar. I think Chuck does a fantastic job on this one. I think he really shines. It's a very simple beat and he walks down the street very nicely with it. I love the ending. The ending always pays off pretty well on this song. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, having Crystal, Richie and Mark playing the sax at the end it's just huge yeah there yeah and it's such a big sentimental line too that it it works well the more people are playing it you know it's funny in the album version too it's not that heavy on the sax near the end right there's sax there but it's like sax and guitar pretty even keel yeah but you know in these later versions the sax really kind of takes the center stage and you know i I always picture the moment where they all step into the lower apron of the stage in front, and that's kind of like their little moment at the end, then the song ends and they duck back. I did notice, especially near the ending point, you could hear a lot more of the uh, audience noise. The crowd volume was certainly up. Yeah, I was curious about that speaking. I have this noted for another song, but we know now that the, the tour documents of them, they had the option to use clean audience noise, which would be like any production house, as Brad Charlie told us, will have just a reel of audience and you could put that on so there's nothing weird going on. But for those two albums right. specifically, they insisted on using actual captured audience. And I was wondering if they were going to do that for this one. And I guess they did because there were times when you can hear people singing along. Uh, yeah. I think during uh, She's Always a Woman later on, maybe you can hear. Oh, I'm sorry. It was on Goodnight Saigon. That's, this is the one you can hear people yeah. talking on it. And, you know, this is a major production. If they didn't want that on there, that wouldn't be there. And it's there. No, no you, can, you can certainly bring down the audience mics and certainly eliminate some of that and just stick with a lot of the, the instruments and the vocal mic. And so that was certainly a choice to leave that there. So next on the set here, we've got An Innocent Man. And I tell you what. It's so nice to see Billy hitting the high notes again. It's like, a, you think it was like a feat of strength for him on this tour? Like, I can show you one last time I can show you I can do this. Because if you think about it, the Innocent Man tour, I think he did it then. But by the Bridge tour, it was Peter Hewlett singing the background vocals. Right. 
and then Stormfront and on, it was Crystal, mostly. Now, granted, I know they lower key, yada, 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 but even at the in the lower key, this is a, this is a tough reach, and he hits it. That brings us to the Down East or Alexa. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm not considering this a deep cut, but it's certainly one that is not one of his biggest hits and doesn't get any other play on the live albums. He's in pretty good voice. He's actually in great voice for most of this, although he does duck a high note or two. But I think he does it well. I think if you didn't know the original, you wouldn't think that he was modifying yeah. it to get away from a note. Instrument-wise, what you're hearing really at the forefront of the mix is the, the keyboard harpsichord. And on the album version, that's not really prevalent. If it's there, it's kind of sitting back a little in the mix. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's, to me, what makes this feel so different. It could be. I mean, when I saw him, and you, I'm sure you saw him too, on the River Dream Store, he played accordion. Now, the next song, I wouldn't go out of my way to listen to this version, but it comes off very, very well. Uh, this is She's Always a Woman, yeah. and I'm going to say this is in, as intimate as you could possibly get in Madison Square Garden. I think last play at Shea, when it happened there, he benefits from the historic moment that he's in. He also benefits from it being open air. In the documentary, he benefits from the fact that his close friend for decades knows how to capture him intimately to drive home yes. the intimacy of the song. Devoid of all that, he does an amazing job of, of making the garden feel like a small venue. And it just felt like a nice and simple moment. Nothing flashy to it. You know, they didn't layer on a bunch of unnecessary instrumentation. Mm -hmm. It was just a, a, a really well done song. The next up, we've got Keeping the Faith from the Innocent Man album. Now, where Miami 2017 falls flat on this album because it feels too show bandy, feels too orchestrated, I didn't mention, but for Miami 2017, some of the horn lines just straight up pissed me off because they sounded so scripted or so charted. Very orchestrated where I love the idea of like just Richie or someone else just riffing on it, you know, in response to Billy's lines. Uh, here, however, those extra horn hits, those extra charts sound fantastic. I love it. This, the studio version is great. In this case, I couldn't pick one or the other. I would say I could, I could go for either one depending on how I'm feeling that day. Yeah, I kind of felt the opposite. For me, I just didn't like how it landed. I, I, I It's funny enough, I, I did love the horns. I thought the horns were great. Yeah. They did sell it for me, for sure. I think overall, it was a fun performance, certainly. But I think it's the guitars and the keyboards on this. I just didn't didn't like the current arrangement of it. But it didn't completely ruin it, because I, I, I still felt like it was fun and it's just a happy song in general. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the horns helped drive it home. You know, we really see that these newer songs, relatively speaking, really shine. They don't have the baggage of being classics mm -hmm. without the classic band anymore. Like Great Wall of China, we haven't gotten a whole lot of documentation on this one. I mean, it was on the Millennium Show, but still. And it'll be on Last Play at Shea, but that hasn't happened yet. He sounds great on it. Uh, really nice version. I have uh, lots of spirit. I love the break. And this is the rare Billy Joel song that you could listen to multiple versions of and get something different out of him. Like, really different. Because he just right. goes to town every time he gets to that piano solo. I really love that. He right. doesn't do that a lot. He's known for his flourishes here and there, but every solo that he plays on this song sounds radically different. I'd love to really think about what about this song inspires him to do that? Did he create just such a simple backdrop that he could get all over the place on it? Did he just personally mm -hmm. love this song so much? Or did he just decide that this is the one I'm going to do it on? And what's great about right. this one is it's not a pretty solo. Uh, when he plays this on Last Play at Shea, it's like we were talking about the bop solo on Zanzibar. Like the, the one on Last Play at Shea, that is complex and melodic and fast you know and he's going for that more classical thing over here this is straight rock and roll he's up on the, he's up on the high keys he's not playing a lot of melody he's playing a lot of rhythm he's playing percussively and on paper it probably looks like crap but it sounds great it fits you know it kind of transcends yeah. the idea of, of notes and music theory and he's just he's just literally playing his heart out on this and, and it's such a joy to hear certainly I, now I tell you what you know live maybe because you know Ever since 1994, every time I've seen him live, this is one of the songs that has made an appearance at every show. Yeah. Understandably so, because it's a crowd favorite, but having seen him so much, 
I tend to tune this one out, but I will say I did try to pay a little more attention this time around, and I just really love the energy on this. Yeah. The band sounded really good. The background vocals were fantastic. Mm-hmm. The song just moved so well, and the band did a fantastic job with it. And I, I did love Tommy's uh, little callback to uh, the Joker near the end of the song. Oh, I didn't even catch that. He's just doing the wee-wee a little bit. Matter of Trust. This one makes a few appearances. This one's on the Russia album's concert in Bridge to Russia. Uh, it was also on Yankee Stadium. And I remember when it was on Yankee Stadium, the intro threw me until he got to the one, two, three, four. I like the intro on mm-hmm. this. Tommy's guitar on it reminds me of Third Stone from the Sun by Jimi Hendrix a lot. It's funny. I thought of another song. During the verses, uh, Tommy's guitar reminded me of Van Halen's version of Oh Pretty Woman. Ooh, I gotta go back and listen. He sounds different. Vocally, he sounds different, but he sounds older and it works. Not every song sounds good when you're older. This one does. A couple of nice inflections on there. And I think the years add wisdom to it. One thing that I felt maybe wasn't necessary was the percussion. There's some uh, congas and I think going on in there. But I, I, I don't feel like it really added to it. I could have done without that. I definitely like Tommy's work overall, uh, but I really did miss the David Brown solo. And honestly, even the Kevin Duke solo from 1987 that he only had a couple of weeks to get together. Yeah. I think David got the spirit of the David Brown thing pretty well back then. But David Brown to me had such a knack of playing something that served the song so well, but was so understated, but, but almost never flashy. And I love that about his solos. And Tommy's a rock and roll player, certainly. So Tommy likes to step out and it's great. But I, I really loved the guitar solo that David had on this. And I did miss that a bit. See, the, the congas didn't stick out to me. And I guess that's in a good way. I, I don't know. I disagree with you. Respectfully, sir. I feel that uh, <laughs> I feel it blended together kind of nice. Yeah, if, I think if you focus on the on the hand percussion, it sounds a little stiff. But if you yeah. if you let it blend, it sounds nice. Now we're back into real hit territory. We got we didn't start the fire. He's still having fun with this one at this point. Maybe a break did him well. I mean, you know, by the time he does it in the video where the teleprompter stops and he stops the song, like he's clearly so done with this song at that point. You know, like he's just mocking it on stage. But it sounds like he's kind of into it here, and I think the you know the rhythmic nature of the vocals again lends itself well to this band, where they lock in in such a way that he can bounce off it more. I like the heavier drums, I like the guitar work, I like the extra synthesizers. The backing vocals are great, and for all I said about him enjoying it and stretching out with the rhythm, you can definitely hear him stumble a little. At least one or two of those lines, you know, he almost he almost yeah. screws it up. I tell you what, though, I really love Tommy's guitar work on here. Yeah. Um, I think it was primarily David Brown and maybe Mick Jones as well playing on the uh, the album version. But Tommy did a did a fantastic job and really I felt really dialed in the guitar sound on this. Like really came close to how the album version sounded to me. And he did pull out a lot of elements. In in that song especially, I mean Storefront in general, there's a lot of guitar ear candy going on throughout the whole record. Yeah. It's a very guitar driven album. Mm-hmm. And there's so many cool little parts that unless you're really listening for it, they just enhance the overall mix, but they don't pop out. Right. Tommy pulled out quite a bit of that ear candy in this version here, and I really liked it. So I'm going to put these three together, although we'll discuss each one, because this next run of songs, this trio here, represents what we know about Billy Joel's concerts, is that he sequences them so they just feel like a party by the end of it. And this is a great one, two, three. We get Big Shot, You May Be Right, and Only the Good Die Young, all in rapid order. Um, so this definitely, where a lot of this must have been out of sequence, you know, besides the fact that it was, you know, culled from 12 shows, this sounds like right. the order in which it would occur on a, on a regular night. Now, of the of the early rockers that they play, I think this one works the best. The band here comes closest to the old school swagger than they'll get on anything else. Yeah. I think this song is so angular and halting in its rhythm that you're forced to adopt mm-hmm. that. You cannot smooth this out, like, at all. You lose the song without it. Yeah. I felt my head bopping the whole tune. Yeah. And that's what that song does. Now, what's funny about You May Be Right uh, is that they play a couple extra riffs at the beginning. Usually, you're mm-hmm. used to things going by in groups of four in a song. Um, but in the in You May Be Right, he definitely cuts a few measures here and there. Like, there's times things only happen two times when you're expecting them four. Uh, going into the solo right. significantly is one... But also at the beginning, uh, the riff doesn't go by as many times on the record as you think it's going to. 
but they add right. those two extra riffs in uh, for this version at the beginning. Yeah. Groove on this, served well by the band in the arrangement. Uh, the vocals, again, yep. sound older, but it still works, and uh, you know we're definitely into party time now. Yeah, big party vibe, and I'm not mad about it. You know, it's loose <laughs> and it's fun. Yeah. The one thing that was a choice that they made with the arrangement that I never liked so much was... It ha- on the original version, the keyboard on you may be right there. So like, I think a Fender Rhodes or probably a CP80. Right. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. But where during the verses on the album version, the guitars and the bass keep that root chord throughout the verses. Below it, Billy on the keyboard goes up. Yeah. Just dun, 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 up. It kind of climbs up at the end of each line of the verse. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the instrumentation stays stays down. The whole band seemingly goes up with the keyboard Mm. and I don't like it I don't don't like it I don't know why but I don't like it it's simplified you know there's when there's more texture with one instrument going up it's much more interesting now only the good die young uh not too much to say about this one as well my notes here are that uh, I like hearing the organ up a little further in the mix than we're used to too you got a big band feel going at the end with the horns and uh I'll take it I'll take it. It's different. And yeah. I, I, you know, because it's an, now he's older and he's not a brash young kid anymore. So let it let it swing a little. So the funny thing about yeah. this when it comes to the drums is that, you know, Liberty Pitt plays brushes on the studio version. And for the most part, he does not play brushes live, at least not on live from Long Island. I'm going to attribute that to the fact that the soft sound of a brush is not going to translate in Nassau Coliseum, let alone Madison Square Garden. And so he used to alternate. He used to hit the snare, and then he would hit his floor tom, and he would go back and forth. So it would be like, doom to snare, doom to tom, doom to snare, doom to tom, right? Now, I listen real closely, because I always got to be up Chuck Berge's ass, because I'm a drummer, and as I've said, I have a tinny or otherwise. Interestingly, he stays on the snare. He plays almost no bass drum. Funny, he leaves it out, so it gives the whole thing a much more floating kind of feel uh, you would think there would be at least be a bass drum on the three in uh, you know reggae fashion, or I mean I've played this yep. before where like if if the rest of the band didn't know how to pick up what needed to be put down, you just did a straight shuffle, you know, and you got the point across. I right. think this is an interesting move to let it float without a bass drum to anchor it. So next we move on to scenes from an Italian restaurant. He's in a weird voice on this one. Better versions yeah. are out there. Nothing wrong with this one, but. He leaves in some clunkers. Yeah. He, he screws up a cl- chord or two. Double clams, yeah. Yeah. The bass is off in a spot. I kind of like that. You know, I mean, for, for one we hear a million times, it's nice to hear Ben being human about it. It's nice that the crowd sings along, but they don't stop and let them sing. Or stop and force them right, to carry right. it, I should say. So now we're going to go into Piano Man here. You know, nice version. Usually I say boo to when the crowd sings along, as I alluded to in the last song, but... Given that this is an artifact of a show, I'll take it. This is another strange, you know, one that he lopped off the intro, like Miami. He just goes right into the piano and harmonica bit, the little piano riffing in the beginning. Does it not work? No, it has to, because he does it on Live from Long Island. It's not that it doesn't work. Anymore. And it works great. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they took, maybe they chopped it, man. Maybe they had to take it off. Oh, from the recording? Yeah. yeah. And then we go to And So It Goes, and we're going to go ahead and assume that this didn't actually come after Piano Man. Or maybe it did. Hey, maybe we shouldn't be assholes and have them looked up the set list. You know, yeah, right? Yeah, around that time in Last Place Shit, you know, like he would end with like, where's the orchestra or souvenir. So maybe this did close out a show or two. Yeah, let's see. Let's go back to the... Uh... He plays it on April 24th, but it's in the middle of the set. It certainly doesn't look like it ended. No. So that's out of order, as most of these things are. Very nice version. Must have been a shocker to hear. And, you know, that's another song that it's so delicate that it's really hard to pull off in a big arena. Yeah. But I think it works great. Uh, I tell you what, I love the organ. Yeah, that was my note, too. The organ is great. Really fills it out when you have to add a little extra touch for an, for a, for an arena. Yeah, and it's never too much. It just sits so nicely and adds just that little bed and a nice little bit of color to go with the piano. Mm-hmm. Just really nice. Do you know what I came up with? I've, I've decided that And So It Goes is the middle-aged She's Got Away. And then we get Still Rock and Roll to Me, which is considered a hidden track or a bonus track, whatever you want to call it. Clearly, clearly out of sequence here because this would go anywhere else. And, you know, in real life, this would go in the, uh, in the big rockers at the end. In fact, you know, what we saw on the actual shows was that... The big party stuff at the end would go 
if you, I don't know if you, I would I would call it from here. Uh, this was a good example. We went, you know, towards the end of the set would be Keeping the Faith, River of Dreams, Matter of Trust, and then we kick it into high gear, Highway to Hell by Chainsaw. Uh, we didn't start the fire. Big Shot is still rock and roll to me. You may be right as a closer. Then he comes back and does Only the Good Die Young, and then you get scenes from an Italian restaurant and Piano Man. So that said, yeah. Still Rock and Roll to me is clearly out of sequence. Band rollicks right through this one, and we definitely got some Elvis vibes going on. Yeah, I don't know. I just, this one doesn't grab me. You know, it was the first song that I fell in love with by Billy, but I don't know. Th- this arrangement, I just don't like it as, as much. I don't know. Place my finger on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it was great to see live. I'm sure him doing an Elvis, you would have laughed when you saw it, you know. So I'll leave this one as as a document. It's nice to have. It's nice to know what he was able to do with these, to have fun with them this this late on, which turned out to be early on because this, as we've said, you know, kicks off the next phase of his career, leads up to the residencies in 2014. And with that, that brings us to the end of the album. And there were actually two bonus tracks, which I know, Jack, you talked about Mm. a bit. I want to touch on um, Honesty and Stiletto which if you listen to it like on Spotify, you can hear those there. Honesty is a good version. I think Chuck kind of flubbed the intro a little (laughs) bit, which was kind of amusing to me, but he settled into it nicely and um, just a nice version. I've always liked that song. It doesn't come out a ton, but it's, it's certainly a great tune. It is. Stiletto sounded great. I tell you, that's a song that I would love to see get back into a set list. And that really brings us to the end of the album. No joking this time. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yep, and so the album actually came out just a couple months later. It came out June 13th, 2006, and, you know, was a tour souvenir for the rest of the tour, really. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that I think they could have done a little more with was the album cover art. Yeah, it, it kind of almost looks good. Like, from afar, it, it looks pretty cool, but up close, it just uh, it doesn't kind of, yeah, it looks a little cheesy. I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that Photoshop effect. It's a very <laughs> dark Photoshop effect yeah. in black and white and then throwing the red live stamp on it. I think it could have been a little cooler. Like you could have at least taken the uh, the, the wire box or whatever off the edge of the piano just for effect. Right, right. Easily could have removed it. Yeah. yeah. All in all, you know, it's a fun record. It's not one you really yeah. have to sit down and listen to, but... Man, if you're you're moving around, you put it on, you have a good time. Yeah, agreed. It's not an album that I've listened to much at all. I can't even tell you the last time I listened to it all the way through like this. You know, if a tune comes up on shuffle, I'll certainly listen to it. But it's been a long time since I've listened to this one front to back, certainly. I do love the rarities that really, to me, stole the show. You know, your Night is Still Young's and Great Wall of China of the world. You know, those songs were, to me, the highlights and were some of the best performances. Yeah, because again, you know, they sounded the most fresh. He hadn't played them to death, and it was nice to hear him finally give him a lap. I mean, you, you even wonder, like, what's it like for him when you have these songs, you've barely played them out live, they've always lived in the studio, and you're hearing them and feeling them for the first time with that audience energy coming back at you. Like, I bet you, like, it gives him a different dynamic on the song, a different dimension. It's so hard to determine what an audience is going to gravitate towards, too. You know, some of these songs have just as much, if not more merit than some of the big hits. Mm -hmm. Yet, you know, you play a song like She's Right on Time or you play a song like The Great Wall of China. A lot of the audience just kind of sits there, doesn't know what to do. Billy loves playing these rare songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, he loves them. I think they have the most fun with those songs which seems to be clear on this recording. Yeah. They know what the paying audience is largely there to see. So structuring the set list is a delicate, you gotta remember, most people at these shows aren't you and I. They're not gonna get off on the awesome deep cuts that we would. Yeah. They wanna hear Piano Man, they wanna hear Uptown Girl, they wanna hear all the hits, and I get it, but I love these little nuggets. Yeah, you gotta figure it's the person that's going once, be every five or 10 years to see Billy, as opposed to you even more than me that will go every chance you get. So that said, of course, we push it on back to you people, our fine listeners. I want to know, I'd love to know what people think of this album as a statement of intent for that he would do next. Curious to see who was there, if anybody was at this legendary run of shows. Yeah, did you feel that this was a big comeback for Billy after the uh, sabbatical and you know the time with moving out running on Broadway? Did you feel a renewed excitement in Billy? And did you feel like that this was going to continue again on for many years? Now, what was the feeling at around these shows? So let us know. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Or find us on the socials under Glasshouses, a Billy Joe podcast. We love reading emails and messages on the air. We'll always ask you first. Uh, make sure it's cool that we read what you got. You can edit it. You can change something. Or you can just tell us no. 
but uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully you, you want your voice heard because you guys have some interesting things to say for sure. And, you know, again, we've said it before, but if you haven't already, another big thing that helps us out is if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or frankly, anywhere that allows you to rate or review the podcast. If you can leave us a five-star rating and a positive review, that goes so far in helping us get in front of more people. And I tell you what, I know on Apple for a fact that uh, since the last time we mentioned this, we've got uh, another handful of positive ratings. Oh, awesome. So, uh, so thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's you guys are really helping us out in more ways than we can ever say. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, it's a labor of love for us to do it, and we love to do it, but it makes it that much more sweeter when we see that you guys get something out of it too. Absolutely, we're in this for the long haul, so we uh, we hope you are too. And we've got so much more to come. Um, But I think we're going to wrap this one up and we will see you guys next time. Yep. See you next time. And as Billy ended this concert with, don't take any shit from anybody. See you soon, guys. 